Thank you, Matt. Um, as we think about, Matt referenced um, discipleship. Um, we think about our vision as a church, our desire to make disciples. Um, what a great opportunity uh, to intentionally invest in the life of another. And as you navigate life together, it provides opportunities uh, for you to even share uh, what Jesus has meant to you in similar situations, and it can open up the door. Won't always open up the door, but it can open up the door for spiritual conversations that lead to life transformation that he was talking about. Um, and so again, if you'd like to connect with Matt, you can meet him at the back table after our worship experiences. Uh, so we're going to wrap up this leverage series today. Um, just to kind of recap our journey, we started off in Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 8, week 1, verse 1, uh, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's where we get this idea of leveraging our lives. We give God everything, and he multiplies it and makes it far more than we could ever do on our own. When we give God everything, uh, he uses it uh, for his mission and for his purposes in this world. Uh, week two, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse two, that we're not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, any longer to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we're gonna ask God to give us a new way to think about the world, a new way to think about life. And so that helps us give him everything. And then last week, as we moved into verses three through eight, we saw that one way we can do that is to surrender to him, to give him our time, and our talents, our abilities, our spiritual gifts, and say, God, hey, use me, similar to what Matt is talking about, and in a number of other ways. Today, we're going to move to what we often view as one of life's most precious commodities, and that's how do we leverage our financial resources, our wealth, our possessions for the kingdom of God and for the mission of God in this world? Well, what does it look like to say, God... I give you everything. I give you my wallet. I give you my purse. I, I give you my bank accounts. I give you my stocks. I give you my home. I give you my car. Like, like this is yours, God. Use it for your kingdom. How do I leverage those things for the mission of God? In order to help us understand how to leverage our financial resources for the mission of God, I want to look a few places. First, we're going to look at just understanding God's heart. Because here's what I know is that the words of a teacher, the words of a preacher, the words of a parent, the words of someone else in your life are not going to convince you to let go of the financial resources you have and invest them in his mission. It ultimately has to come from a higher place of authority. What does God have to say about the wealth that you possess and the resources that you own? And so first I wanna look at just understanding God's heart and then we're gonna look at some practical things that we can do and recognize and understand in order to leverage our resources for him and for his kingdom. So to understand his heart, let's go first to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, we're gonna be in verses 19 uh, to 24. Uh, Matthew chapter six is part of uh, the gospel of Matthew that we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of this lengthy sermon that Jesus gave to his followers to help them see the world and understand the world uh, in a different way. Uh, he wanted them to understand what mattered most to the heart of God. And so in Matthew chapter six, he, he talks about anger and lust, divorce, uh, our promises that we make, how we love enemies. He, he moves on to talk about fasting and, and worry, teaches us about prayer in Matthew chapters five through seven. But tucked in there is this instruction on wealth, earthly possessions. Uh, and here's what he says. This is Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. We'll look at the first few verses, and then we'll look at the next ones kind of in sequence. 
He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The culture that Jesus was speaking to in many ways was so different than our own. It wasn't a culture that had to worry about what smartphone they were going to own, whether they were Android or iPhone or Google. Uh, they didn't have to worry about, you know, um, measuring their homes in thousands of square feet. They didn't have to worry about uh, what, what was the right automobile or truck to handle their tasks for the day. And yet at the same time, even though they're so far removed from our culture in those aspects, they share something very similar with us and that they, like us, fought against this um, prevailing influence that the things that we can purchase, the things that we can buy can somehow bring us a greater quality of life. And Jesus says, don't store up treasures on this earth that can be destroyed, that can be stolen, but store up treasures in heaven. In other words, don't invest in the temporary, but invest in the eternal. And I think all of us can resonate with the struggle that we have even in our own world. We are inundated with messages day after day, sometimes from family, sometimes from friends, uh, oftentimes uh, in our entertainment, whether it's billboards, texts, emails, commercials, that somehow just by acquiring more or getting something more or doing something more, that somehow my life might be more. And yet, what do we find the longer we live that every time we think we've found more, it disappears like a desert mirage? When we were driving back from California this summer, helping uh, our former minister here, Philip, move back to the Midwest, uh, I drove for most of the trip because I just enjoy driving. I can remember driving across the state of New Mexico and the whole barren landscape and I was just captivated as I was driving to look out and it seemed like always on the horizon was a huge body of water. Just the, the way the sun and the heat of the day, I don't understand the science of a, a mirage, but, but it always looked out as you looked at the horizon that there was water up ahead. But guess what? Every time I got close to where I thought that water was, what happened? It disappeared. And I think that's how so often we are when it comes to our quest for more in this life with the things that money can buy. We think that if I just got this, if I just went there, if I, if I could just afford this experience in my life, then somehow I would be more. And it seems like it's just out of reach. And so if I just keep going in this one direction, but what happens when we get that thing or we have that experience, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy like we hoped it would or that we thought it would. And that's what Jesus is getting at here is that we're not to store up treasures on earth. That can be destroyed, it can be taken away, but instead we invest in the eternal. And he wraps it up with this thought that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. The Jewish people of Jesus' day, much like us today, we look at the heart as kind of the center of a person. It's the center of decision-making. It tells a little about who we are. And he says that where our treasure is, it reveals our heart. The place that the pursuit of wealth and the accumulation of things has in our life 
says a lot about who we are. And, and that causes me and it causes us to ask a really hard question. What, what, what is my pursuit of wealth? What is my pursuit of possessions? What, do, what is my pursuit of treasures in this world say about my heart? What does your pursuit about those things say about your heart? So see, God's heart for our wealth is that it would be used for eternal things, to leverage them and to invest them what matters most to him. Jesus continues, verses 22 through 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think to us, this sounds a little bit like a riddle, um, but to help you kind of understand the Jewish way of thinking, uh, it was the Jewish way of saying how you see the world is a reflection of what is inside of you. And so if your eyes are good, it means that you're seeing the world from the good that's been placed inside of you. You're seeing things as God would see them. But if your eyes are bad, you're seeing the world in a dark way because you've not yet allowed God to teach you his ways. You're not conforming to his ways. And again, all this is in the context of wealth. Do, do we allow him to shape our understanding of the world and wealth and how we invest it and in the process bring light into the world? Or um, do, we, do we cut off that part of our lives from him and that darkness affects how we see the world? And then Jesus wraps it up with these words in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. And no one can serve both God and money. He says, listen, you, you've got to choose. Is, is God going to be your master or is money going to be your master? If we're going to leverage our financial resources for his kingdom, for his mission, we can't let money be our master, but instead let God be our master. And maybe here's a way to think of it. Either you serve God and use your money in service to him, or you serve money and you use God in service to it. Will you serve God and use your financial resources in service to him? Or will you serve money and the things that money can buy and use God in your service to them? The point in Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24, Jesus is saying, here's God's heart for our wealth. God gives us our wealth so we can invest in his eternal purposes and his eternal kingdom. And so that's the starting point. If you're gonna leverage your financial resources, we have to understand his heart. Because again, you're not gonna accept it from some preacher. You're not gonna accept it from some teacher. You're not even gonna accept it from your parents or a grandparent until you recognize that the higher authority is him, that he cares about what you and I do with the wealth that we possess. Now, now once we understand God's heart, what, what's the next step we would take? Well, we would recognize that ultimately that he's the rightful owner of everything that we have. God owns it all. I could take you to passage after passage in scripture, but I chose just three, and I want to show them to you on the screen. Uh, one is 2 Chronicles chapter, ah, oh, there it is, the magic finger worked. Um, sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. This is a prayer that David prays after the collection of things for the temple that Solomon would build. And look at what he says. He says, but who am I? This is in his prayer. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. 
Did you hear what David is acknowledging in this prayer? What I'm giving you actually belongs to you, God. I'm just giving you what you've already given me. Or look at the words of Psalm chapter 24, verse one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the people and all who live in it, like everything is yours, God. Or look at the words in the New Testament from Paul to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That God gives us everything. So again, in the context of leveraging our financial resources, his heart is that they would be leveraged for eternal purposes. How do we get there? First, we have to recognize that what we have is ultimately his. It's, it's not our own. For a disciple of Jesus, it's one way that God has to renew our thinking and renew our minds. We are inundated worldwide, but especially in our American culture, with what you have is yours, you worked hard for it. But what if what we have is not really ours, but it's his? Because he gave us the intellect. He gave us the business sense. He's the one that's provided the resources that we have. We recognize that he is the rightful owner. Every cent in our bank account, every possession in our home, it's ultimately his. We just get to be managers of it. We get to be stewards of it. And so to leverage our lives, you understand his heart. God wants us to invest in the eternal. And we start that by recognizing that he owns it all. There's nothing that I have that does not belong to him. Where's the next step? What's the next step? Well, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 to give you the next steps. And I hope that these will be uh, super practical for you. I'll give you a little bit of context, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We're not going to have time to read the whole passages. I'm just going to highlight a few verses. But to set the context... In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is encouraging the believers in Corinth uh, who lived in a much wealthier city uh, than many of us uh, would probably recognize. Um, Corinth was known for uh, its affluence. They, uh, they've made a commitment to, to give generously to something that Paul has challenged them towards. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul shares about how there are uh, people in Jerusalem followers of Jesus who are suffering. Followers of Jesus who were the first to decide to follow him and leave the Jewish faith to convert to this new way of following Jesus. And because of that, they not only met hardship from Rome, but hardship from their Jewish ancestors. And so they were, they were suffering. They had trouble paying bills. They had trouble buying food. And so Paul travels uh, to the cities on his missionary journey and he holds out to them the plight of people in Jerusalem. And he says, I, I want you to give to help them. Well, it appears as we read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that the Corinthians had made a pretty, a pretty bold commitment that they were gonna give generously uh, to the people in Jerusalem. And so by the time we get to this second Corinthian letter, um, it's time to collect. And so what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is he actually is challenging uh, the Corinthians to, to come and be good on the promises that they've made. But before he even challenges them fully, he highlights the example of others that had given to the Jerusalem church. He highlights the, the giving of what he calls the Macedonian believers. And these are probably believers in Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And what he highlights in their gifts, he challenges and encourages in the Corinthians. And that's what I want to show you because it gives us a model for how we can give and invest in God's kingdom. So here's the model he gives them. He highlights the willing, generous, 
and joyful gifts of God's people in Macedonia that are motivated by what Jesus has done for them. And that's what he challenges in the Corinthians, to be willing, generous, and joyful, motivated by who God is and what he's done. So here's the first, they were willing. So here's what he praises in the Macedonian church. This is uh, verses two and five. Sorry, verse two. Uh, No, verses three and four. My memory is failing. Uh, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Look at what he highlights again in the Macedonian believer's example. They gave as much as they were able, beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. The Macedonian believers were willing. I am captivated by the expression in verse four. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Um, I could probably count for you on three or four fingers on the number of times that someone has come to me and pleaded for the opportunity to give to our church or to give to the kingdom. And that's what the Macedonian believers did. They pleaded, like we want to give. They were so willing to give and to invest in God's kingdom and what God was going to accomplish in the life of these Jerusalem believers. So he highlights the example of the Macedonians and then when we move over to the encouragement and the challenge to the Corinthians, uh, here's what he says, was it in verse seven? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, you see the call and the challenge to give willingly. He challenges them to give generously, and he highlights the example of the generous gifts among the Macedonians. Look at verse two and verse five in chapter eight. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What a curious collision. Overwhelming joy and extreme poverty collide and it results in generosity. Look at the description in verse five. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. They exceeded expectations. Again, the Macedonian believers gave generously. And look at what he encourages in the Corinthian believers. Look at verse 11. He says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. He hides the Macedonians being generous and he challenges the Corinthians to be generous. Joyful. Again, verse two of chapter eight, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. Overflowing joy. They were joyful in their giving. What does he challenge in the Corinthian believers? Verse seven. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants them to give joyfully. And all of this is motivated by what God has done in Jesus Christ. You can look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, which we don't have time for this morning. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 14 and 15. Both places he highlights what God has done in Jesus. And so here's the summary as we look at the Macedonian example and the example of the challenge of the Corinthian believers is that God challenged them to be willing, generous, joyful, motivated by what God has done in Jesus Christ. If you and I are going to leverage 
our financial gifts, our possessions, our wealth for King Jesus, for his mission. It'll come because we understand his heart, because we recognize God is the rightful owner of everything, and because we choose to become people who will be willing, generous, and joyful in our own gifts to his kingdom. Why? It's all motivated by what God has done for us, in us, and through us, in Jesus. So let's just ask the question, are we willing? Are you and I responding by being willing givers? Do we desire to partner with God in what he's doing in the world? Are we overwhelmed by the need of people throughout the world? You may say, well, Craig, what, what do I give to? How do, how do I know what the right place to give to? And I would say, we give to the things that matter to the heart of God. And I think kind of a, a place in scripture that gives us kind of an outline of this is you can go to the life of Jesus. Well, what did Jesus say was most important? What did Jesus do? And, and a great place to look at this is in Luke chapter four. When, when, Luke, when, when Jesus comes into his hometown of Nazareth and he's called upon to preach uh, in the synagogue that day, he pulls from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he, he reads the words of Isaiah chapter 61. And he says that the spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set captives free, to declare the year of the Lord's favor, and likely read the entirety of Isaiah chapter 61. And when I, when I look at Isaiah 61, I can see that for me, I need to recognize that what matters to the heart of God is proclaiming his good news, sharing with other people who he is and what it means for their life, and removing barriers that stand between them and understanding those spiritual truths. And so if, if I'm going to be motivated by what matters to the heart of God, I see that, God, you want other people to know about you. You want other people to hear about you. You want, you want me to be used in removing barriers that keeps them from knowing about you. And that's what spurs me on to willingly, generously, and joyfully give to his kingdom. I want to give generously. I grew up in a church tradition that talked about the tithe way more than Jesus ever talks about the tithe. Way more than Paul ever talks about the tithe. And it was taught as though giving 10% was the gold standard, that every follower of Jesus should strive to give 10%. But as I read the New Testament, I see an even greater standard, and that standard is generosity. Generosity allows us to look at, are we going to give more and more of our stuff and our wealth away to God and live off of less and less, because this kingdom matters. I don't have time to go into all of it, but if you actually chart the tithe in the Old Testament, you will find that there were at least three different tithes that the people of God gave. The first tithe was a tenth of everything that they got from the land and from their livestock, and they brought it to the Levites to provide for their needs, and the Levites gave another 10% to the priests. There's a second tithe where they would take another tenth of what was left of their livestock and of their grain and their crops, and they would bring them to the place of worship and they would consume them together as an act of worship. And there's a third tithe that was given every third year that would provide for the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows in their land. And so when you add all these together in the Old Testament, it's actually like 23 and a third percent of their giving that was invested in, in, in giving offerings to God. Growing up, I never heard that. Growing up, I was just told, give 10%. Am I challenging you to give 23 and a third percent away to the kingdom of God? No. 
I'm challenging you to see that the tithe is intended to be something that helps us be generous. The more I follow Jesus, the more I should be investing in his kingdom. I'm inspired by stories of generosity. I had a preacher growing up. His name was Joe. Joe and I disagreed on a lot of things, but I was inspired by Joe's example. Joe and his wife had worked themselves to a place where they gave 50% of everything they received back into the mission of God. They gave to our local church. They gave to other global partners. They invested in our community. But they chose to live off of less and less, being more and more generous to invest more and more in what matters to the heart of God. And that example inspires me. I know of another preacher in Washington, D.C., who on his goals for his life, like his like bucket list of things he wanted to do before he died, is he wanted to get to a place where he and his wife could give away 50% of everything to the mission of God. And again, that includes the local church, but it goes beyond the local church. It's, it's investing in those things that matter to the heart of God. See, that's the standard I see in Jesus. It's not just that we would give a tithe, the 10% or whatever. That's a great thing to kind of aim for and shoot for. But I've told you before that a tithe, while it's a great goal, it's a horrible place to land because as we make more and more money, God can use our generosity as we stretch ourselves to help us rely upon him more and more and he brings even more good to happen for his kingdom in the world. And so we be people who are willing and generous and joyful. I love what he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9. Don't, don't give reluctantly out of compulsion or out of guilt, but give joyfully, give cheerfully. Would we be people who are so motivated and so captivated by what Jesus has done that we would give joyfully and cheerfully to his kingdom? If we're going to leverage our finances for the mission of God, again, it's not just about the local church. I can make a case for the local church, and I'll do that here in just a moment, but it's beyond that. It's, it's taking what we have and saying, God, I wanna invest in what you're doing here, there, and everywhere are words that I've used here before. We're motivated by what God has done for us. He is the first and most generous giver. So will we leverage these assets that we have for his kingdom? Where do you begin? I would encourage you strongly uh, to begin somewhere. If you're not giving anything away to things that matter to the heart of God, start somewhere. Find a mission, uh, invest in your local church, uh, find a organization that's doing things that you know matter to the heart of God and just start giving something. Uh, I was reading a report this week from 2022 that said in America now that Christians on average give 2.5% of their income away to charities. And the key word is charities. It's the local church and other organizations. That's down uh, from the 90s and from the 80s and from the 70s and from the 60s. And what it shows us is that more and more followers of Jesus are choosing to keep more and more for themselves. But what happens if we turn that upside down and we say, we're going to invest in your kingdom? So start somewhere. Start with something. Then ask God to help you as you stretch and sacrifice and he, he provides for your needs and those gaps that you feel like you have. Here's where I'll make the case for the local church. The local church doesn't always seem as dramatic or captivating as giving to hungry people overseas or people in need in another country. But the local church is often where those very ministries were inspired. A young man or a young woman was sitting in children's church 
And he heard about God's heart for the poor. And so God grew in them a heart to go overseas, to start a nonprofit in their community. And so most of our ministries and our world organizations are making a difference. What matters to the heart of God are administered by, led by, and um, the primary workforce in them are people that connect back to the local church. And so as we give faithfully to God's people and God's work and God's church, he uses those gifts to propel more and more works, to catalyze more and more works in our world. So I will make the case for the local church every time. Audrey and I give the first of what we get uh, to the local church. And then we've been trying over the years of our marriage to stretch and move beyond the traditional tithes and more and more percentages away to other organizations in our community and around the world. And I encourage you to do the same because God wants our investment in his eternal purposes. If we're going to leverage our lives, we have to understand that it means all of us. We can't separate parts of our lives out and say, you know what, God, you, you can't have access to my money. That, 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 that's just mine. We have to say, no, God, everything I have is yours. So use it for you. Use it for your kingdom. Use it for your purposes. And as we lay those on the lever of who God is and on his power, he multiplies them and he does incredible work in our world. Let's be a church that leverages our financial resources for his kingdom. Yes, in the local church, but beyond that, Organizations like Boone County Mentoring, our global partners like Fame and HCO and Hanging Rock and, and TCM, and the list goes on and on. Let's, let's leverage our gifts for him and let's see what God does as we trust him for what's eternal. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for how you do provide great clarity around our wealth and possessions in your word. And God, I understand that for whatever reasons in America, those are hard things to hear. Um, we're fine standing alongside of you and championing the cause of the unborn child. Uh, we're fine standing beside you and championing uh, how you designed us as sexual beings. We're fine championing the importance of your word. But God, for whatever reason, uh, we want to quarantine off our wealth. And so God, would you break through that for us? Would you help us to see that you want us and you have gifted us, you have provided for us wealth to invest in your mission and in your kingdom. And God, would you raise up a church here at Lebanon Christian Church that's faithful in their stewardship of what you've provided. And it's in your name we pray, in your name we trust, in the name of Jesus, amen. Will you please stand with us?